architecture outline. It says the Church of Peril and Promise on it. Be able to follow along. We have come to the end of our uh, time with the seven churches. This is the last of the seven churches. And then we have a couple weeks in Revelation 4 and 5, which really focuses on worship. And then we get into all the really good stuff. So, hang on tight. But let me read for you Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the outline. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at the church in Laodicea, will you please help us? We know we're too much like this church. We don't trust your word as we should. We struggle with the same sins, the same idols, the same issues. We lack faith. We're self-centered, we're sinful, and all the while we think we're doing fine when we're not. God, we know that soft words produce hard people, and hard words produce soft people, and we find these words hard. And we want to be people who are soft and kind and loving with each other, so bring the hard words. Lord, help us to meet Jesus in his glory as we see him in these words. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' good name. Amen. This Sunday, it's possible that more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. Yet in 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in China. Only in 1971 did the government, the communist regime, allow for one Protestant and one Roman Catholic church to hold public worship services. And it was mostly a concession to visiting Europeans and African students. This Sunday, 
more Anglicans attended church in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda, in each one of those countries, landed Anglicans in Britain and Canada and in the United States combined. And the number of Anglicans in the church in Nigeria is several times the number in any of those other African countries. This Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than Scotland. And more Presbyterians were in congregations of the Uniting Presbyterian Church of Southern Africa than in all of the United States with all of the Presbyterian denominations combined. This Sunday, the churches with the largest attendance in England and France had mostly black congregations. About half of the churchgoers in London were African or African-Caribbean. And the largest Christian congregation in Europe is in Kiev, and it's pastored by a Nigerian of Pentecostal background. This week in Great Britain, there are at least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries hard at work evangelizing the English. Most of those missionaries are from Africa and Asia. It's as if the globe has been turned upside down and sideways. A few short decades ago, Christian believers were concentrated in the global north and west. But now a rapidly swelling majority lives in the global south and east. Dr. Mark Knoll of Notre Dame, the author of the insightful book, The New Shape of World Christianity, How American Experience Reflects Global Faith, observes the Christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years than at any other comparable time in history, with the possible exception of the very earliest years of church history. More than half of all Christian adherents in the whole history of the church have been alive in the last 100 years. Close to half of all Christian believers who have ever lived are alive right now. It's as if a Christian uh, Rip Van Winkle fell asleep under a tree in 1960 and woke up this week to the sound of church bells. And after wiping a half century of sleep from his eyes, if he tried to locate his fellow Christian believers... He would find them in surprising places, expressing their faith in surprising ways, under surprising conditions, with uh, surprising relationships to culture and politics, and raising surprising theological questions, all of which would not have seemed possible when he fell asleep. Now, there's two generally acknowledged um, causes for this gigantic shift. One is the remarkable growth rates of evangelism and missions and particularly Bible translations in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the islands of the South Pacific. The second great cause is the equally remarkable decline of Christian adherence in Europe and America. Now, adherence, I look this up, means 
faithful attachment. So Christian adherence means faithful attachment to the Christian faith. That is, we not only profess our faith, but we also live in accordance with our faith. Now, if you just looked at the raw numbers, even though the populations have increased, the raw numbers of Americans and Europeans who profess some faith in Christ hasn't dropped significantly. But the number of people whose lives actually reflect that faith has dropped dramatically. Why? Why have we seen such a huge decline in Europe and America when Christianity is booming everywhere else in the world? As a percentage of the world population, there's more Christians now than there ever has been. But not here and not in Europe. Many people think it's because we live in Laodicea. Or at least a modern version of it. There's an old song uh, by a Christian artist named Steve Camp called Living in Laodicea. And he was writing about the church in America. And the lyrics, the, the chorus of that song goes like this. For I've been living in Laodicea, and the fire that once burned bright, I've let it grow dim. And the very word I swore that I would die for has all been forgotten as the world's become my friend. So that's the situation, and that brings us to our text this morning, which was written to a church living in Laodicea. It was written by the only one able to understand their situation, the only one able to address their situation, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus. So let's start by looking at the words of Christ. In verse 14, the words of Christ. I'm so excited we found this old pulpit again because that means I get to use this chair. I haven't been able to use it for a while. I missed it. How is Jesus revealed here? It says, verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. No matter what the congregation thinks of themselves, it's Jesus' evaluation of the congregation that really matters. Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus will tell the truth, the hard truth, and nothing but the truth. And in this letter, Jesus is going to bear witness against the Laodiceans. He's going to deliver an awful threat and an amazing promise. It's fitting that he identifies himself as the one who has the credibility and the power to say these things. When he says he's the amen, he means that he's reliable. He's God's confirmation, God's yes to all the divine prom promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The word amen is simply a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means firm or true or faithful. So the next phrase defines it, the faithful and true witness. So this letter is not to be taken lightly. 
It is the word of God with all his firmness and truth and reliability behind it. Now, the elders may think well of the congregation. The people of the congregation may feel good about the congregation. The world can think a congregation is rich and successful. However, it doesn't matter what our evaluation is if Jesus thinks differently. And apparently this church thought one way of themselves, and Jesus, the faithful and true witness, thought another way. And it's not pretty. And Jesus confronts them with words of rebuke. Verses 15 through 17, words of rebuke. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In his letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus warns us about the dangers of self sufficiency of a I can do it myself attitude now Laodicea is an unusually wealthy city it's a banking center and it's proud of their financial resources its financial independence is a matter of local pride so much so that in an act that we can hardly conceive of today in the 21st century uh Back in the first century, in A.D. 60, they refused uh, the financial aid from the Roman Empire that was offered to repair all the damage caused by an earthquake in A.D. 60. They had an earthquake. Most of the city was uh, destroyed. All of it was damaged. And rather than accepting aid from the Roman Empire, the people of Laodicea refused help and rebuilt the city themselves with their own resources. They didn't need and they didn't want anyone else's charity. And yet, while Laodicea appears to have everything, it lacks the most basic resource, water. It sat between two nearby towns in the same valley, both easily visible in either direction. Colossae, the letter to the Colossians was written to them, uh, is famous for a cool, refreshing water that flowed down from the snow-capped mountains. And in the other direction, Areopolis is famous for its hot springs. So both the hot water of Areopolis and the cold water of Colossae are both so refreshing. Both of those waters are useful. They do what water is supposed to do. But Laodicea has no water supply of its own. Water has to be piped in through aqueducts because there's no natural supply as the site of the town located at the junction of several roads was not near any river or spring. And some of the pipes through which the water was brought to the city are still in existence today. And there's a really high mineral content of the water and it's indicated by thick deposits on the interior of the pipes. And so by the time the water arrived from these other towns, it was lukewarm. And it was full of sediment. And Laodicea is well known for lukewarm 
bad-tasting water. Cold water is good for drinking. Hot springs reputed to have healing qualities. But lukewarm, sediment-filled water neither refreshes nor heals. It's basically just disgusting. (coughs) Water is a good thing. But here Jesus tells the Laodicean church that they're just like their water. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, it's pretty cold outside. You may have noticed that. It's been pretty cold all week. I don't like cold. And when you've been out in the cold, whether you've been shoveling the sidewalk or playing in the snow, what do you want when you finally get inside? Heat. You want to be warm. And in that kind of situation, we like hot. Hot chocolate, hot tea, hot apple cider, hot soup. And then we want to take a hot shower with our hot wife. We like hot. (laughs) Did he really just say that? Yes, he really did. But six months from now, you'll be complaining about the heat. I won't, remember, I like hot. But most of you will. When shoveling the sidewalk, (laughs) I can't even look over there. (laughs) When shoveling the sidewalk turns into mowing the grass, when playing in the snow becomes playing in the yard, What do you want when you come inside? You want cold. You want something cool. And in that situation, we like cold. An ice cold Coke, iced tea, cold lemonade, cold beer, a cold swim in the pool. We like cold. Lukewarm? Not so much to say about lukewarm. No one's ever asked me for a lukewarm beer. No one wants lukewarm Chocolate, because then the mini marshmallows don't melt. (laughs) You know, lukewarm doesn't warm us up when we're cold, and it doesn't refresh us when we're hot. It's not good for very much. Toilet water is lukewarm. (laughs) Pretty much out of lukewarm ideas now. There's two verses in this passage which are often misunderstood, and this is one of them. Jesus is not saying that he wishes these people were either spiritually hot or spiritually cold rather than being lukewarm. Nowhere in the Bible does God desire for his people to have cold hearts. Rather, he explains what he means by being lukewarm in the next verse, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The lukewarm person is one who's lost his dependence on God. In his arrogance, he believes he has no need of Christ's righteousness because he has enough of his own. Whenever we take pride in our own moral goodness, 
we've fallen into the sin of the Laodiceans. We are like lukewarm water. Jesus is comparing lukewarm to two good things, hot water and cold water. They're both useful. They're both refreshing. Lukewarm is neither. Now, some of you here might be hot. You love Jesus and you orient your life around serving him. You pray, you give, you teach. And some of you might be cold. You're refreshing. People love to be around you. You love, you serve, you share. And some of you are lukewarm. When it comes to loving Jesus and loving his people, you're indifferent. You're ambivalent. You give people the impression you don't really care. When it comes to the ministry of the church, you're dead weight that we're dragging uphill. And you might find that offensive. So be it. Jesus doesn't like lukewarm. And you see, loving Jesus and loving his people, his church, is something that's seen. If you can't see love in action, then perhaps there's not that much love there to begin with. Because bottom line, you and I do the things that we care about. And you can say, but, you know, Dave, you can't see my heart. And you're right. I can't see your heart. But you're not supposed to be doing these things for me. You're supposed to be doing these things for Jesus. Out of your love for him, in response to the grace that he's given you, and he can see your heart. And he's letting the people in Laodicea know that he knows exactly what they're thinking, exactly what they're saying, exactly what they're doing. These people said, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I have a good job, a nice car, a big house, lots of money, great resume. I have more degrees than Fahrenheit. I'm very important. See, these people suffer from the disease of affluenza. That's a real word. Affluenza is defined as an array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of wealth. It's an unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit for more. And while I'm using this word to describe the church in Laodicea, the word affluenza was coined to describe our lives today. The church of Laodicea is alive and well in Loudoun County, Virginia. I think it was St. Augustine who said, saying, I have everything is terrible when everything doesn't include the living God. Now, the church then and now has apparently imbibed a full measure of this spirit of self-sufficiency. And it's possible that the Christians' prosperity uh, resulted from compromises they made with the idolatry of the local trade guilds. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say this church is uh, suffering great persecution. Doesn't say this church is battling great idolatry. Doesn't talk about any false teachers. None of the problems of the other six churches are mentioned here. 
but it does appear that they haven't let their Christian faith interfere with making money. We saw the Smyrna church back in chapter 2. They were financially poor, but spiritually rich. The Laodicean church is the exact opposite. It's financially rich, but spiritually poor. But Jesus finds this kind of spiritual pride so offensive that it makes him sick. He will spit out of his mouth all those who think they're rich in their own righteous works. These Christians weren't denying the faith, but they weren't doing anything on its behalf either. They were useless to the cause of Christ. So is that it? Is it over for these people? Not at all. Because the church is all about grace, and Jesus is all about grace. So he comes to them with words of counsel. Verses 18 and 19. Words of counsel. I mean, outwardly speaking... Things couldn't have looked better for the Laodiceans. They were a wealthy and influential church in a wealthy and influential city. They were located right at the intersection of some major crossroads, what we would call highways. They had a booming banking business with lots of gold. They had a famous medical school with a famous founding professor who invented an eye salve with uh, using... uh, Phrygian powder. So people who had eye problems came to this place to get help. They had a well-known industry, a black wool industry, because the fertile ground of the nearby valley provided great grazing for sheep. So it's a clothing, a textile center. They're rich. They help people with their eyes. They had clothing from the sheep. They're famous for these things. And yet Jesus says to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He picks on the things the city is known for. He says, it's not good enough. You need to get the real stuff from me. It's for me you get the real clothes and the real eye medicine and the real wealth. And then he says, verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Walter Marshall once said that your heart is addicted to salvation by works. As a result, we often wear our good deeds like uh, spiritual merit badges thinking we can impress God, and if if not impressing God, we can at least impress each other with our good deeds. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, we pride ourselves that we're not like other men. After all, we're not engaged in the perversity of our culture. We're not engaged in the perversity of our culture. I mean, we pray sometimes. We tithe 3%. We read our Bibles occasionally, and we serve in the church when we're guilted into it. And yet we must realize that that kind of arrogant self-sufficiency, according to Jesus, results in disgusting works. No matter what those works may be, 
And there are times that some of us, some of you are pathetic. You're not lovely, lovable, or loving. Now, everyone is not that way all the time. But all of us are some of those things some of the time. There are times when we're unlovely. There are times when we're unlovable. And there's times when we're unloving. So where's your hope? It's right here in verse 19. We skip over it. Read it too quickly. Here we read, right at the beginning, those whom I love. And that's your hope. That even when you're unlovely and unlovable and unloving, Jesus loves you. You are loved. And here in this verse, Jesus ties together at the beginning and end of the verse, love and repentance. See, unless we can see that we're poor and needy, Jesus will have no part of us. We didn't begin the Christian life poor and then grow into the riches of our own righteousness. We began the Christian life spiritually bankrupt. And as we grow, we come to understand the depth of our sin and our great need for a Savior. It's only when we see our poverty that we can become truly rich. So Laodicea and its ineffective Christianity, its useless, self-satisfied, going-through-the-motions form of Christianity is a message of immediate relevance to every part and parcel, every age of the church. The summons of this letter is to be heard and answered by every Christian over and over and over again every day and by every church. Remember the first of Martin Luther. Luther's uh, 95 Theses, the opening salvo of the uh, Protestant Reformation. The very first one read, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance, like the faith from which it springs, is not something done once and for all at the beginning of your Christian life. Apparently, that's what the Laodicean Christians were thinking. They believed, they repented, they became Christians. Their relationship with God has been taken care of. And I don't know if they would have put it that way themselves. But it seems that faith and repentance were no longer part of their lives. They could live the same way as any other inhabitant of Laodicea. But repentance, as the Bible teaches everywhere... And as we're reminded here in this text, it's supposed to be the habit, the daily characteristic of the Christian life, not something done once and then never again. There will be the need for every one of us for repentance over and over and over again every day. And the will of Christ for the church is that our poverty be replaced by spiritual riches and that our nakedness and our shame be covered with the robes of righteousness and good deeds and that our blindness be healed so we can see things as they really are and we can escape from this dream world of self-sufficiency. And there's only one place we can go to get those things. From Jesus himself, he says, buy from me gold. But how do you buy gold when you're broke? Jesus knows we're broke. He just said so in verse 17. And not just broke, but blind. We can't see, we can't work. And not just blind, but shamefully naked. We can't even leave the closet. So how do you buy gold and garments and salve for your eyes when you're poor, blind, and naked? 
How do you get the wealth of Christ and the power to be clothed with obedience and the wisdom to see things like God does when your house is empty and you're too frightened and ashamed to venture out? Jesus tells us we're poor, blind, and naked, and then he says you need to buy this stuff. I can't buy that stuff. I can't see. I can't leave the house. I have no money. And the answer is, you don't go out. You invite Jesus in. You don't go out. You invite Jesus in. And that's the first thing we see when he gives this church tremendous, amazing words of promise. Starting in verse 20, we have words of promise. And in the ancient world, the meal had far greater significance than it does today. And I would urge us to sort of get back to that model that when you share a meal with somebody, it's a time of great fellowship. You know, that we reorient our lives from the drive-through to actually spending time together over food. It's the 11th commandment for Presbyterians. Thou shalt not do anything without food. But sharing a meal is a symbol of affection and acceptance. Remember in Luke 15, Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees, not only for associating with tax collectors and sinners, but for eating with them. It wasn't bad enough that he was hanging out with them, but he went into their house. He had a meal with them. They, weren't, they couldn't handle that. And in Acts 11, Peter is criticized by Christians in Jerusalem, not for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They were okay with that. The problem is he went into their house and he ate with them, eating with Gentiles and with tax collectors. That's getting too close, going too far. And Jesus hasn't changed. He still wants that kind of intimate fellowship with us. He says, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's a picture here of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. You know, and it may seem kind of pathetic to you, like some homeless guy looking for a meal. But that's not the picture he's trying to give us. In reality, Jesus is the master of the house, whose servants are expected to be ready to open the door for him at his return. And the house is his own house, in which he graciously and remarkably condescends to dine with his servants. There was a parable about this in Luke 12. It says, Jesus was speaking, say, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes at the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Jesus is the master. 
coming to his house. And he's gotten to the door and he's knocking. I said there were two verses that are often misinterpreted. This is the second one. And it's not wrong to apply it to an individual life and say Jesus wants to come in, because that's true. He does. But this is written to the church, and the house is his church. This is the house of God. This is the sanctuary of God. And Jesus is standing outside his house, knocking on the door. And Jesus says, I love the church. I want to be with the church. I died for the church. The church is my bride. My wife's in there. I want to see her. He likes hot. This statement is referring to the promise of communion right now with believers who repent of their sins and turn to the Lord in new faith, new obedience, new service. The summons here is for all the people of the church, the whole church, individually and corporately, people who are already Christians, to be renewed in their fellowship with the Lord. And if we open the door, notice he promises more than relationship. He promises that we'll reign with him. Verse 21, this comes directly from Daniel 7, which is why we did Daniel before we got to Revelation. Daniel 7, it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. So to sum all this up, Jesus is saying, stop pretending to be what you're not. Get serious about your relationship with Jesus. Remember, he loves you, and he wants you to repent and to open yourself to him being active in your life once again. He is the master of the house, and to those servants who stand ready in his service, he gives amazing promises. Betsy Child is a uh, associate writer uh, for the Ravi Zacharias Ministries in Atlanta. In a recent article, she discussed the similarities between the church in America and the church in Laodicea. <clears throat> and she writes, she says, I remember feeling great distress as a child over the images of starving children that were regularly shown on television. At the time, most of the children I, were, I was seeing were victims of famine in Ethiopia. Their swollen bellies confused me. If they were starving, as the people on, on TV said, why did they look so fat? My mother explained to me that the abdomens of these children were swollen because they weren't receiving any protein. Their distended bellies were a sign that they were severely malnourished. And she writes, Just as I misinterpreted the swollen stomachs of the Ethiopian children, it's possible to misjudge the health of our culture and our society and our church. In the same way that the distended stomach of a starving child looks deceptively similar to one who has been overfed, the abundant evidence of material prosperity in our country belies the spiritual poverty in the West. In his book, The Progress Paradox, 
Greg Easterbrook. As far as I know, he's not a Christian. He's a writer for the Atlantic Monthly. But in this book, he documents the sharp rise in prosperity over the last 50 years in America. Basically, he says not only have the rich gotten richer, but those in middle class and even lower income brackets now enjoy many comforts that even a few decades ago were the, only the prerogative of the very wealthy. He says, if you sat down with a pencil and graph paper to chart the trends of American and European life since the end of World War II, you do a lot of drawing that was pointed up. Per capita income, real income, longevity, home size, cars per driver, phone calls made annually, trips taken, highest degree earned, IQ scores, just about every objective indicator of social welfare has trended up on a pretty much uninterrupted basis for two generations. And subjective graphs, which show steady upward trends, personal freedom, women's freedom, reduction of bias against minority groups. But your graphs would lose their upward direction when the topics turn to the inner self. The trend line for happiness has been flat for 50 years. The trend line is negative for those people who consider themselves very happy, that percentage gradually declining since the end of World War II. And the trend line would cascade downward like water over a falls on the topic of avoiding depression. The subtitle of his book, it's The Progress Paradise, Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. In spite of the material prosperity of the West, spiritual poverty shows through like gaunt limbs that can't be hidden by designer clothes. And ours isn't the first society ever to mask spiritual starvation with material excess. In verse 17, Jesus warns this church in Laodicea about this thing. He says, you say, I'm rich, but you're poor. Prosperity isn't wrong, but it is dangerous. Again, going back to Luke, the man we call the rich young ruler. Remember, he approached Jesus. Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. Was that because the poor couldn't be fed any other way? I don't think so. Is that because wealth is intrinsically sinful? I don't think so. It's because Jesus knew that that man's wealth possessed his heart. And it wouldn't admit any rival master. And those Christians apparently didn't take it seriously when the New Testament speaks of followers of uh, Christ seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, of laying up treasure in heaven, of keeping themselves unstained by the world, of counting everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ is Lord. They seem to be just as eager to get rich and just as worried about accumulating things as everyone else in town. They have as much satisfaction and as much pride in the things for which Laodicea is famous as any other inhabitant of that town. And if the Christian faith doesn't seem to make all that much difference to them, why should it make that much difference to anyone else? You know, Christians talk on and on about knowing Jesus, about uh, being present by the Holy Spirit, about walking with the Lord, and they seem to have a knowledge of God and communion with God that practitioners of other faiths have never experienced. And if that's true, how come it doesn't make more of a difference? 
How come Christians don't live their lives in an obviously different way? Does knowing God mean so little? And a lot of times, Christians can turn pale when we hear people ask such questions. And often we turn pale because we know all too well how we ourselves have contributed to that impression that people have. I mean, we can laugh about somebody who's confidently predicting the end of the world, but carefully keeps his life insurance current and up to date. And it's demoralizing for us to think that we can be like that in even more serious ways. You know, we can sing Amazing Grace and not be amazed. We can talk about heaven and then act like we don't really want to go there. We can assert that this world is not our home, but we're putting down roots like everyone else. And we can talk about depending on God, but seem to be count, counting on the same things that our unbelieving friends are counting on for their happiness and their prosperity. And I'm not exempting anyone, not even myself. We all fall into that. We live that. We breathe that atmosphere in this county. Dr. John R.W. Stott writes, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to today's church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. Zeal, heat, fire, passion. These are the qualities we lack today and we so desperately need. So our prayer is, may we not be a mixed church, you know, where we can come and go in fast food style and move quickly, but don't savor the gospel. Don't be misled by the signs of prosperity all around you. Swollen stomachs don't indicate nourishment, and success doesn't ensure health. And unlike those who are physically starving because of famine, we have a choice. Spiritual food is close at hand. We need to ask God to evict the love of the world from our heart and prepare ourselves to taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen to what Jesus says in this letter. Because only those who can't pay get to buy what Jesus offers. Only those who can't pay get to buy what Jesus offers. Think about that. You need to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Lord, help us to take seriously what's written here. For those of us who need to realize our true spiritual condition, make it clear to us. For the, those of us who need to stop trusting in our, our own works and our own goodness and our own resources, open our eyes to both our sin and our Savior. For all of us who need to repent, lead us to repentance and then clothe us with the, the garments that only you can provide. We ask you to do this among us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.